Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also Not That Too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 44, Control, recorded, what is it, January 24th, 2023. We're expecting a big snowstorm very soon, so I'll let you know how, how it turned out. <laughs> uh, there's been a, an uptick over the brief hiatus over December and January where people have been discovering and exploring the podcast, and I want to say thank you if, uh, if you're, you're just joining in. I hope you find what you're looking for here, and sorry that it's got to be me giving it to you, but... Um, I hope the show is living up to its promise, and as always, thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Death of a Dream, and our outro is Sleepyhead. Corrections today, I couldn't spell Garrett correctly for the life of me while negotiating terms with the I Know Dino Duo. I don't know any Garretts, and I don't know how to spell it, and I even called him Gavin at one point. Repeatedly, I spelled Garrett's name incorrectly, and I'm super twitchy about that sort of thing, and I'm really sorry. <laughs> but um, but also very thankful that they were guests on the show, and I hope that you feel the same way. Are exploding bolos a real thing? In episode 41, The Road, my terrific guest Zoe Handley and I discussed exploding bolos, and I looked into this and found that there are something called exploding bolas with an A. I think that's spelled different than what the game does, but... Uh, this appears in a James Bond film as one of Q's inventions. Bolas are a real type of thrown weapon with weights on an interconnected cord, which when thrown wrap around the legs of a subject, entangling them. Hunters and herdsmen might use these to snag a leggy animal like a sheep, for example. The exploding bolas entrap a subject and explode when the weights hit each other. So no, I don't think that they're real. And I also got uh, Pavel Kubina confused with Alexander Karpatsev, which probably means nothing to almost all people. Uh, Kubina was a defenseman who joined the Toronto Maple Leafs as a Stanley Cup champion and free agent in 2006, but the Leafs stunk with him. Whereas Karpatsev was a defenseman traded to the Leafs from the Rangers in 1998, and the Leafs stunk with him too. That's all. All right, Dinosaur News. The Journal of Systematic Paleontology published in December 2022. A new small-bodied ankylosaurian dinosaur from the upper Cretaceous of North Patagonia. The authors reviewed all the published material and representative ankylosaurian remains of the Allen Formation of Rio Negro, Argentina, along with some new remains to summarize the knowledge about these ankylosaurs. They reviewed material on teeth, dorsal, anterior, and caudal vertebrae, a femur, and several osteoderms and incorporated new remains including synsacral and caudal elements, a partial femur, and more osteoderms. Uh, and note the sacrum appears to be a bony section in the back above the hip elements. I had to look that one up. So, all these elements support a, quote, notosaurid identification in agreement with the previously published papers. And they name a new species, the, the Patagopelta cristata, characterized by the, quote, presence of unique cervical half-ring and femoral anatomies, including high-crested lateral osteoderms in the, in the half-rings and a strongly developed muscular crest in the anterior surface of the femur. This animal would have been about two meters long, which is small for an ankylosaur, similar to the dwarf notosaurid Struthiosaurus. The animal was phylogenetically identified to belong in the Notosaurinae family, was from the Campanian to Maastrichtian age, and its de description suggests that the Selectromoran notosaurids are part of the Alochthonus fauna that migrated into South America during the late Campanian 
as part of the first American biotic interchange. That's a tough sentence. <laughs> hey, try and, try and use alloxanus in a sentence. That means that they're from a different place or environment, and thus alloxanus fauna would be ankylosaurs that come from away, as the Newfoundlanders like to call them. The name Patagopelta breaks down as follows. Patago refers to Patagonia, and Pelta is Greek for shield, while Cristata is Latin for crest, referring to the diagnostic crest on the surfaces of its femur and cervical rings. So, this is the Patagonia shield with diagnostic crests. The holotype is MPCA-SM-78, housed at the Museo Provincial Carlos Amegino which was excavated from the Allen Formation. It's comprised of a cer cervical half-ring element, as well as referred materials like cervical neural arches, osteoderms, caudal vertebrae, and both a complete and a partial femur. Uh, the next news story, first published in December 2019, the Paleontological Association published the article Three-Dimensional Soft Tissue Preservation Reveals in the Skin of a Non-Avian Dinosaur. In the article, the authors report that they've identified 3D-preserved eumelanin-bearing bodies dermal cells, and blood vessel fragments in an organic matrix composed of protein fossilization products belonging to a hadrosaur. Quote, the skin is much thinner than that of living mammals of similar size, says the report. It is likely that the preservation of hadrosaur skin is related to the arrangement of the layers composing it. The abstract says that fossilized skin is most commonly associated with hadrosaurs, and it's been hypothesized that this skin is most resistant to decay due to such factors as thickness and composition. The specimen is called YPMPU016969, which is three-dimensionally preserved skin, and the author's interpretation is based on the, quote, structural preservation of layers, diagnostic cellular and organic matrix morphologies extracted from them, and chemical characterization of those layers and organic structures obtained by decalcifying them. They concluded that the mineralized dinosaur integument has yielded proteinaceous soft tissues. The structure of the skin suggests that, quote, these dinosaurs may have had a similar physiology to aves. Coloration of the skin may reflect ecological parallels to large-bodied extant mammals. The composition and structure of the skin may be important factors in explaining the abundance of hadrosaur skin in the fossil record. All right, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. My special guest for this episode is an amigo of mine from back in college. He used to dye his hair red, and then he grew a maddening beard. And he will always be Adam Buck, not to be confused with Uncle Buck. How are you today? I'm excellent, Ryan. How are you today? I'm pretty good, thanks. How many Uncle Bucks have you got? I have two Uncle Bucks. And they must be just exhausted with being compared <laughs> to... <laughs> it takes a lot of effort to make that big toast. <laughs> um, so this is great. Thanks for being here. Adam and I met uh, when the evil queen asked her magic mirror, who is the fairest of the land? And at that time, I was moonlighting as a magic mirror, uh, experimenting with different career ideas. And so magically, I told the queen that the fairest skinned, fairest haired, and the most impartial <laughs> and just person I knew was... Of course, Snow White, but then after we conspired to get rid of her, uh, then in second place was Adam Buck. <laughs> you have a fair complexion, sir, and your hair is is probably a little bit lighter than blonde, and it's perfect uh, if you were to dye your hair. It's just right for that. <laughs> How, do you get to dye it very much anymore? Or is that just a, uh, a frosh week sort of thing one day? <laughs> that was, yeah. I think that was the second last time I dyed it. I dyed it again that year, but uh, brown, like Auburn, brown. Mm -hmm. During Super Bowl, actually. Okay, in support right. of a particular team, or just that's what it was going. Uh, no, the the some of the women on my uh, dormitory floor were dyeing their hair, and I was like, "All right, I've never been brown before. Let's uh, let's go." <laughs> right on. <laughs> I don't think there's a single photo of that either, though. I can't I can't uh, seem to recall if there's any any photographic evidence of some of that stuff. It's kind of a 
kind of nice at the same time that uh, those pre-digital camera days that there's no evidence of some of the shenanigans that transpired back mm -hmm. then. I'm okay with that for the best. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. We have all of these smart devices. I was just looking at somebody. I was laughing. Um, somebody had tweeted out. So Twitter used to show you what device your tweet came from. And okay. uh, at some point they deleted that. And so somebody put like this um, memorial to back when they had that on there. And it was this thread of this uh, young lady who whose mom had taken her phone away. And she was tweeting from her smart fridge. <laughs> <laughs> the tweets are like, I don't even know if this is going to work. My mom took my phone away. <laughs> <sighs> So that, that's, that's too great. funny. I, I didn't realize you could download apps onto your smart fridge. <laughs> I you can it's smart. So which I think just means you can go on the internet, and we all know how smart the internet is. So um, right, it just means it's like interconnected or it's Bluetooth capable or Wi-Fi, whatever. Mm -hmm. So smart. So smart. <laughs> <laughs> all the best opinions are available at the touch of a finger. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I sent you a link about Stefan from Saturday Night Live. You mentioned you did not know Stefan. But wasn't uh, as familiar. I never really watched, or still don't watch SNL. It was uh, it was up past, it was on past my bedtime yeah. as a kid, and it was just one of those things that I never really fall fell into. Although, mm -hmm. you know, those DVD collections of like the best of Christopher Walken or whatever, I I remember there being multiple copies of those mm -hmm. lying around the fraternity house, and them inevitably being on the TV at some point. So I've seen a number of skits, but mm -hmm. I can't say that I ever watched. Uh, SNL, so not super familiar with all of the characters. It's kind of become a legacy thing for me, but I mean, I remember when we started watching, it was, I was taping them and watching them the next day, and it, those were like Mike Myers and, and uh, Dana Carvey and, and Adam Sandler and Farley and it, the whole the whole shebang before they got, you know, older and opinionated. <laughs> <They> were, <laughs> Rob Schneider didn't, hadn't gone off the wagon or anything like that yet, so it was all good. <laughs> But um, so anyhow, yeah, Bill K Hader has this character that recommends the hottest clubs in New York. And so folks out there listening, Adam came to mind to be a guest on this show because I recall bumping in into him at this rock and joint in Windsor, Ontario, that used to be called The Loop. The Loop, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> if you're looking for a good time, look no further. Windsor's hottest club is The Loop. Inside, it has everything. Alumni from Vincent Massey High School, Double <laughs> Muds. A thrash metal band in the basement, your biological father, people falling down the stairs, and equal shots of vodka, rum, gin, blue carasso, and a splash of bar lime coke and tequila. The Loop. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, The Loop. Uh, I was just in Windsor over the Christmas holidays, mm -hmm. and I, that building, I'm not sure who bought it, but uh, they were converting it, I think, into lofts or, or like residential units or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, Zach Cranny was telling me that when they went in there and started tearing the place apart, they found that there was somebody living in the ceiling above the loop for an undetermined period of time. They've been like coming up and down the fire escape. And I, and I just think like that person's probably been living there for 30 years easily. Like if somebody told me that there were people living in the ceiling of the loop mm -hmm. 20 years ago, I would have believed it 100%. His name was The Loop and then he just named it the after <laughs> I'm not surprised. The loop had yeah, everything. No, me either. <laughs> so we we crossed it. Yeah, it's obviously closed now. Um, and we, yeah. but back in the day, we crossed blurry, blurry paths. And I recall you like yelled across the dance floor that you'd read this book that reminded you of me. Do you remember this? 
Yes, yeah. It yeah. was uh, the lost dinosaurs of Egypt. Yeah. So let's get started there. The lost dinosaurs of Egypt. Uh, what led you to read that? Uh, I guess. Uh, well, as ever since I was a kid, I was obsessed with Egyptology, like mm. the ancient study or the study of ancient history in Egypt, and that was um, something that I always, yeah, just was really. I mean, when you're a kid, I think it's interesting the dinosaurs, ancient civilizations that. They kind of have this attraction to you for whatever reason. Uh, I did enjoy that actually in the novel. I'm just there was this line in the book that I just wanted to bring up because I, I really enjoyed it, and it was about Dr. Grant and like he's kind of less of a curmudgeon, like he's more of a curmudgeon in the, the movie. Like he definitely doesn't like kids at the beginning of the movie, but and like he scares the shit out of that one kid by telling him that the raptor's gonna slice his belly open in the very <laughs> opening scene. Which I'm just like, man, I'm surprised the kid didn't wet his pants. That was terrifying. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the book, he's much more kid-friendly. He talks about all these, like, seeing these kids and how they love dinosaurs, and that's why he kind of loves them. It was um, essentially that, like, kids love dinosaurs because they, like, exuded this sort of un uncontrollable force of nature, and it has to do with, like, the love that they have for their parents mm -hmm. and all this nonsense. And I thought it was a very interesting and romantic notion from the author about kids and some sort of love for their parents that they don't understand because of all those uncontrolled things and i also thought it was kind of kind of funny but i'm like that's also not why kids love dinosaurs yeah. dinosaurs are big and kind of scary and like ferocious and you know you, just, you go to museums and they have these giant skeletons and that in itself i think is like really awe-inspiring and i don't think it has anything to do with the uncontrollable forces <laughs> of your parenthood and all this all this kind of stuff but um but yeah, so I was drawn to the book because um, I loved I like like loved everything to do with Egypt, and I hadn't been to Egypt by that point when I'd read that book. Um, and then dinosaurs, like I'd wanted to be a paleontologist as a kid, as I'm sure you had, and um, and then I realized I had to learn like a gajillion names for bones that I was never gonna like <laughs> reasonably be able to remember. <laughs> and yeah, so I read the book and I thought it was super fascinating because it told. The narrative of not only the German and British archaeologists or paleontologists who were sort of competing to find these bones in, um, I guess, it'd be Western Egypt in in the desert, um, but also talking about the story of discovery of why these giant dinosaurs. And so, if you're not familiar with what animals were found there, they they did all these archaeological ex or paleontological expeditions in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, and so they were finding all these like massive, massive um, carnivores and they couldn't understand how there's these giant, giant carnivores in the middle of the desert uh, and what would have <laughs> sustained them 100 million years ago. And then to realize, you know, that, that had been at one point like a low, low inland sea and that had been very marshy and there would have been tons and tons of herbivores to sustain um, these giant carnivores because they were much bigger than Tyrannosaurus rexes and um, they, uh, there was a number of them, and so so you know you need a big herd population to feed such large animals, and so it was kind of, uh, it was a you know a story about the the progression of paleontological thought and process over the 20th century and discovery of um, sort of the the botany, the paleontological botany and things like that, uh, but also I thought this it was just really beautiful story about these competing British and German paleontologists, and so at the outbreak of World War II. Um, the Germans were expelled from Egypt because it was sort of under the control of the British until the Germans came back in and the British then came back out. And so 
they did everything they could to get the German out of there. And he went back to Dresden and had a beautiful museum there with all the specimens and everything like that. And it was sort of, sort of the story about these scientists who were able to like work cooperatively, even through these international conflicts and these political things and sort of the, how science can be above all of that, which I think, you know, Michael Crichton talks about in the novel, science is this, this pure thing and that it sort of, it should supersede capitalism because he's clearly anti-capitalism in this mm -hmm. book. Like he, he hates the business people, it seems like. Um, and, it, and it always corrupts. But the novel, it's an undergoing theme, I think, is that the money is sort of corrupting the pure stream of science. And, uh, and so this book was sort of very much telling that story. And then tragically, even though this paleontologist pleaded with the German government to allow him to take those specimens and put them in secure locations, uh, people aren't familiar with the history of Dresden, especially in the Second World War. It's an inland, like it's it's a fairly inland city to the German borders. And so it was always believed to be very secure that the Luftwaffe would protect these sort of interior hub cities. Uh, and then in, I think it was 1944, the Allied forces firebombed Dresden in retaliation for the um, sustained V-rocket campaign against the English. Um, so it was like, there's no reason to target Dresden. It was a you know civilian hub. Uh, the Allies were retaliatory in this conflict, and so they firebombed it, and they killed, I think, a hundred thousand or more people. Like more people died in that firebombing campaign than in the atomic blast or atomic drop bomb dropping of like uh, Hiroshima. Um, but tragically, all the historical sites were bombed because it was a civilian center. They weren't targeting industrial mm -hmm. centers, and so this museum was destroyed, and all these these magnificent specimens that were, you know, um, being housed there were, were destroyed to, to time. So I think it's just so tragic that these things are 65, 100 million years old, and we finally get the wherewithal to excavate them properly and, you know, pl pl plaster repairs and jacket them up and ship them to Europe, uh, only for them to sit there for, a you know, less than 10 years and be destroyed by bombs. <laughs> yeah, they survive in the ground for 100 million years. They come out of the ground and we blow them up. Boom. They're gone in an instant. I, I think that's like the, the narrative of human progression, unfortunately. Yeah. Right? Look what We're we discovered. Destructive. <laughs> wow, we just found a dodo. Have you guys seen these things? <laughs> <laughs> I bet you they taste delicious. Let's find out. They don't even taste good. Let's get rid of all of them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have an astonishing yeah. memory for, for all of the details in that novel that, uh, or in the book. That's incredible. I didn't, uh, I was, I wasn't sure if I was going to pull on a a, a, a a forgotten memory or not with that one but good for you <laughs> it's an impressionable book i know for sure it is and i think they they name one of the animals after stromer so ernst stroma is the, the the paleontologist the german fellow that goes out there and discovers things and has his life and his career kind of ruined um and yeah. uh, and uh yeah all of his artifacts and i think most of his research was kind of disregarded because the the nazis didn't like uh didn't like him and i think they sent one of his children off to war like basically as fodder just because he disagreed with somebody but he yeah he had a tough yeah, one and uh, that would make sense i think it was part of the aristocracy a lot of the german natural scientists had, had the, come from this you know the german aristocracy that was under dramatic reform during the inner interwar years in germany mm -hmm. and a lot of them i think as part of like part of it is because they were losing their obviously their grasp on power aristocracy to fight against that but a lot of them weren't peace loving i mean they lost so much during the first world war they didn't really see the need to get like you know get involved in a second international conflict on that scale and 
Um, a lot of them didn't push back against those fascist ideas. I mean, uh, aristocracy is its own form of, I suppose, fascism. But uh, <laughs> in this case, is <laughs> in this case, the, the fascists were like not around, and they were, you know, icing everybody for uh, differing opinions. And so, yeah, they they sent a lot of the kids off to war. They're like, okay, well, your kids are going to have to become officers and frontline officers, mm -hmm. and um, that's sort of what happened. I think. So similar to Rommel, I don't know if Rommel was in the aristocracy, but he was well protected until until they showed up one day and told him that, you know, here's your gun. You can do one of two things with this and the end result is going to be the same. So my goodness, well, don't be I... a Nazi kids. It doesn't end well for anybody. <laughs> it's tough. And I think, the, if I recall correctly, the, the book does a really good job. So it's the story told of um, paleontologists presently or, or 2010 or whatever it was, eight, maybe, maybe earlier than that. But uh Picking up Stromer's old books and field notes, mm -hmm. rediscovering those localities to find more specimens to perhaps learn more about the animals that were lost uh, to the bombing. And yeah, it's really beautiful. And I think they named something after him. And so his his forgotten legacy kind of is, re, you know, put back into the science and, and I'll have a lasting impression. And I just remember the, the last page as all the stories tie together about the success of their uh, return to Egypt and their honoring of stromer and his work and stuff like that it, it's super touching and i remember the, the mm -hmm. end of that book is like very emotional and um it's it's awesome if people haven't found the lost dinosaurs of egypt i'm sure a library <laughs> has yeah. it out there somewhere um and i think yeah. i think it was sponsored by some sort of production company so there's likely if you were to search uh, a documentary of some sort although i imagine the book would uh -huh. do far more uh service to telling the entire tale than the documentary will i think so there was one final thing that already really stuck with me and that was they were talking about when yeah when these 21st century paleontologists went back or maybe it was the late 90s early 2000s because i think i read this book in the late 2000s so um they said that when they rediscovered these sites there were a number of specimens that had been jacketed with plaster of paris and old newspapers because paleontologists of 100 years ago recognized that there was likely to be progression in the scientific endeavors and in the field abilities to mm -hmm. recover. So they only took the very best specimens and they left everything else that was too delicate or too fragile for the future, for people who would have better technologies, better capabilities, better understandings of extraction. And I thought that was just so, so wonderful that there's this, this beautiful legacy that they just left behind the things that they knew they couldn't properly handle um for the future and and they and they did what they could to protect them so yeah when these these youngins showed up 100 years later they find old newspapers and plaster of paris covering these things and they're able to pull that off mm -hmm. and, and and then and then extract these specimens which were really are really great um which just means like just again makes me sad to think about the, the really good ones that were lost <laughs> yeah definitely and to this day um those, I don't know if they were the best specimens of Spinosaurus that had ever been in, unearthed, but they were the best reported upon ones, and they are lost. And, and today, Spinosaurus is an interesting and challenging and confusing and contentiously identified animal that uh, people still yeah. aren't sure what to do with. But it's uh, it's gone it, every time, it seems every year they, they reimagine, there's an argument to reimagine it a new way. And we'll only get closer, I suppose, as as the arguments continue. That's how science works. You're never really at the yeah. the 
science doesn't have a terminus, you know, <laughs> it's always the next thing and the next thing. And what's the next question? And I think that's part of why dinosaurs are fascinating. Part of why Egyptology is fascinating that there is an unsolved riddle. And I think when you're a kid, yeah. you, it's an answer that somebody can't give to you. You, but you can engage and kind of go on that journey. A, a riddle in some respects, and especially big scientific ones, can be like a treasure map. And you and you don't know where the treasure is buried, but you keep kind of looking into it. And I think that that is part of what draws a, a youthful mind uh, and, and one that's looking for answers to, to pursue that sort of stuff. And it's wonderful when there's, you know, dinosaurs uh, or archaeology or anything like that. There is a tremendous amount of cool books, especially ones that are accessible for, for a young mind to uh, to really get to learn a lot of neat stuff. And you just get your imagination going for sure. And so absolutely. That... Yeah, I think. I, yeah. Again, with dinosaurs, I think. And, and, and the book does a really good job of sort of flirting with the new paleontological thought that was coming out of the 80s and the early 90s of this notion that dinosaurs are so much more similar to birds than reptiles. Mm -hmm. Like we always imagined throughout the 2000s or the 20th, 20th century that dinosaurs were reptilian because of their, you know, their claws, their teeth, you know, they like, they make you think of a Komodo dragon or, or other like large animals like that. And then for people to start examining, well, their bone structure actually is way more similar to, to birds and, mm -hmm. you know, the pelvis and the way that their, their, their hind legs are so much stronger and they stand on them, maybe small, stupid little arms that don't do anything for the most part, unless they're, you know, quadrupedes and um yeah and so the book flirts with that and i think like that was the one like the book is beautifully written like it is so much fun to read and it's not the first time i read it it's been 20 years since i've read the book and so going back and rereading it um i love that opening scene of the family on the beach because yeah. that's completely from lost world like that's the second movie that's the opening of that movie and so the book does such a of such a much more eloquent job of introducing the dinosaurs and this concept and immediately out from the gate you recognize that it's utter chaos that science doesn't have a control of it that the island is in in total disarray um because it starts off on in costa rica so you're not even on their island and there's already there's dinosaurs have already escaped and so you the readers immediately throw it into this like un like chaotic uncontrollable world and i think that's it's great and so there's this like, you know, they're talking about using amphibious DNA uh, or, you know, these these embryos in order to formulate. But then they're talking about how bird-like everything is. And, and so I think Michael Green, like he gets so close, like he does a great job of building this like beautiful world and like the science fiction of like being able to create dinosaurs is so good. But then he lacks just like that little bit of imagination to like take the whole world a step forward because they're still using the technology of the time to do these huge leaps and bounds, but then he just doesn't push the envelope forward, just that like little extra bit to reimagine like how would that, how would those computer systems in a, in a world like that actually be, you know, like they're using landline based communication <laughs> systems, which causes problems in further in the book, but you know, satellite technology was around and they could have had tele telecommunications based by satellites back then. Um, and you know, they were those giant, those giant, giant satellite dishes. Like my neighbor had satellite TV in the early 2000s. Mm. We lived in the middle of nowhere. And so it's just like, you know, he, he's flirting with the concept of, of uh, bird evolution and everything like that. And Dr. Grant is talking about these modern theories, but then he just doesn't push it far enough. He just continuously uses like amphibious DNA and all these other things. And it's like, that's that was my one like kind of critique on the science fiction of the book is that he like fully imagines this beautiful world, but then he just drops dinosaurs in 
to a world that exists as it is. And I think that's super fascinating and complex and, you know, prone to all these great conundrums. But at the same time, like for like really pure science fiction nerd in me, I'm like, just change the whole world. Yeah. Like you've already changed this massive thing. Like, why can't you think about, you know, the what the park might look like in a world where mm -hmm. this is the actual reality? You know, like you, and you're right. Was, I mean, we're 30 just, years past Star Trek being invented. So like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like we, we had phaser technology. At this yeah. point, so. <laughs> Our imaginations are not limited to, to, mm. to what was there. But maybe that's the whole point, you know, dropping dinosaurs into the world as it is now. What mm -hmm. kind of chaos would that bring? And, and there's a beauty in that as too. So one of the things that uh, our hero, Alan Grant, gets to do is we meet him uh, out on a, a dig site, and he's using a um, computer-assisted sonic tomography device. They call it a thumper. And in the book, it describes specifically that it is being used in archaeology. And uh, I had a, a paleontologist visit and uh, tell us, I think in episode eight or something like that, that um, in particular, uh, using the sonic uh, imaging to to investigate rock against rock, because petrified bone or, or fossilized bone is rock, that you would get no distinction in terms of your interpretations. But the telling, telling word that Crichton uses is that it is useful in archaeology. And I don't know if he himself became confused and wrote archaeology instead of paleontology when he was writing it, right. uh, because that is not an uncommon thing for people to mix up get those two words mistaken but sure, also yeah. maybe maybe this um computer assisted sonic tomography is something that is being useful in archaeology where you would find a pot which is not a rock or you would find a bone of a person that has not fossilized which is not a rock and therefore the differences in density do appear on the images and so i wonder uh correct me if i'm wrong did you get to go to egypt on an archaeological dig uh, so I went to Egypt in 20, 2008, yeah. but it wasn't it wasn't on an archaeological uh, expedition. I went to Greece in the summer of 2006 with the University of Windsor okay. on an archaeological expedition. And so we did um, we did a, a, yeah, a full summer. We did a four week dig on the Gulf of Corinth, um, which is sort of like the northwest of the Peloponnese, which is the lower sort of detached um, portion of Greece from the mainland. And, uh, and and interesting enough, we did use ground penetrating radar to examine the one right. site that we were on. So there were a number of sites that we, we were involved with. There was a third century AD Roman grave site, and there were seven graves that were discovered and exhumed. Uh, there were, there was the primary site was from about 200 BC and it was a Mycenaean settlement. Uh, and it was a unique, settlement in all of Greece and that some of the features that were discovered there haven't been found anywhere else. And so they've done documentaries about it being the lost city of Atlantis. There was <laughs> a massive perimeter wall that encompassed the entire settlement. And I think it was like 20 miles. Like it was huge, 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 huge. And so the grueling work of that site was to excavate this giant stone stat or stone wall, which was about waist high when fully fully dug out Ooh, yeah. uh, and so that we always joked that was sort of the punishment because <laughs> it was really tedious and it was monotonous and get the students entrenched. it's their job to dig this out <laughs> yeah absolutely and it's 40 degrees in the shade like it was hot but the the interesting feature was this building that had two large um, stone vats that all of the archaeologists of that site and so there was like there was a director of the site and then there was the American co-director who was sort of the financial backer. And then there were some American doc PhD doctoral students and a couple of uh, European ones. And then there was all these, this group of Canadian students that were undergraduate students that were 
really just there to kind of like fuck around and find out. It was just a fun time. <laughs> we weren't like, you know, like hardcore uh, students by any stretch of the match. And we weren't working towards PhDs or anything. Uh, and so they had these these really big uh, stone vats. And so they were trying to determine, they, they did uh, analysis for dye residues because they thought maybe it was like a facility where they, they, they dyed textiles. Uh, they thought maybe it was like some sort of food processing, like they were making, you know, like um, fermented fish or something. And uh, I don't I should really find out about that. I got invited back to like the 15th anniversary of that dig site because they concluded the digs there because they didn't really discover anything like significant in terms of like a statue of Poseidon or something like that. Like we found <laughs> coins when we were there. We found some really interesting pottery. My professor, Dr. Weir, he was uh, he was a Rhodes scholar and his PhD was in coins of uh, Greek antiquity. And so specifically how that related to um, trade commerce and things like that. So when we found coins, he was pretty excited and he could tell us where each coin was met, mint, minted, you know, what that meant and all these kind of crazy things, which was which was super interesting. Uh, he was a fantastic professor. I don't know if he's still at the University of Windsor or not, but he uh, he was like a real life Indiana Jones in that like Indiana Jones was a, you know, hardcore nerdy professor that spoke Latin and yeah, uh, his parents were missionaries, so he grew up in. He spoke Swahili and Latin, um, oh man, English, French. Like he's like he was just a really really interesting guy. Really, Scottish missionaries, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, because I took one of his uh, classes. He was kind of nerdy, but like oh, I oh hardcore. Yeah, yeah but yeah. you're right. If he's but I'm glad you got to know him deeper because that's amazing. Yeah, he was a really really kind kind human being, and uh, he was. Uh, he really encouraged everybody to just, you know, really envelop themselves in, in sort of what we were doing. And uh, yeah, he was a great chaperone. Right on. On that quote, the one that I was talking about earlier, it was uh, Grant decided that children love dinosaurs uh, because this giant creatures personify the uncontrollable force of looming authority. Kids love them as they love their parents. Mm -hmm. It's like, I guess it sucks if you're an orphan, you can't love dinosaurs. So. <laughs> Well, two things about that, and I think the other thing you mentioned is that uh, it gives them an, a feeling of strength or empowerment that they are able to say the complicated names. It gives them some sort of power over over these this mystifying animals, uh, which I don't know if is true. And two, we know that Tim doesn't really like his dad at all. So, like, <laughs> he loves yeah. dinosaurs, but he doesn't really care for his dad. And I don't recall him saying anything especially positive about his mom other than, you know, she's got a new boyfriend. That's what it is. Yeah, they don't really. Yeah, she doesn't get brought up too much at all. So Grant's interpretation uh, doesn't seem to 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 hold up to Timmy's um, life experience, anyhow. Yeah, worldview and all of that stuff. Which, I, yeah, it's great. The, the novel is it is like so much uh, so much tomosity about all these different concepts that the author is trying to convey. You know, mm -hmm. he's, he's like he's obviously pro science, all these things, but then it's immediately corrupted. Like the very first story, the narratives that you hear. are are all of the scientists that are doing that are doing these short stop gaps. They're not doing their jobs properly. So from the outset, you know, the doctors in Costa Rica and they sent off the sam samples to New York and Cornell, the, 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 they're just like skeptics and they're not, you know, they, uh, they keep fumbling the ball. Like they could get to the, the root of the discovery much, much quicker. I mean, that's much less dramatic and interesting for the reader, but um, <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's just so interesting. Like they, uh, he goes through the great lengths to talk about how, mm -hmm. how great science is, but then immediately makes all of the scientists inept and corruptible. Yeah. Um, whether that's because of just you know personal disbelief or um, or or money. In Doctor Wu's case, you know he is 
he can he, he keeps going back and telling him and like we need to let these dinosaurs die off we need to do new dinosaurs uh, and hammond's response is like do you have any idea how much money we've invested and yeah uh, like you, you've done a great thing stop worrying you know the park is going to be a success and then you know 10 pages later it all starts falling apart in a big way <laughs> it's a uh, it's fascinating how you make a good point like the way it all puts together requires a certain a certain like jenga tower of things missing in the right spot or else it doesn't work out like if that one um herpetologist had not been in borneo uh studying some sort of thing and just identified the the specimen as not a basilisk lizard um it would have changed yeah. the direction of uh grant getting the facts and it wouldn't have um would have changed some things i i suppose that that uh, grant still would have been invited to the at the, the, right. as a safety consultant but i don't think uh but we wouldn't have got that wonderful investigation into um lazarus species and things like that figuring out hey what is this thing and so mm-hmm. i guess it teases the mystery along nicely so when you uh yeah. you mentioned you hadn't read the book in like 20 years and then you sent me a picture of a copy that you found that book looked perfect <laughs> was it brand new no it's it's from, there's a there's a chain of used bookstores in calgary called fair's fair uh and so there's one near my work and i went in there two fridays ago and just was like long shot here. Do you happen to have a copy? And then they had one copy of it, and I scooped it up five dollars and fifty cents. And if you keep the price tag on it, you can return the books back to that store for, and you get fifty percent off, or you get fifty percent back of purchasing price. Wow! So it's uh, it's actually it's a remarkable book used bookstore. Um, there was one in my neighborhood that closed unfortunately a couple years back, but this main one, it's 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 like I'm a kid in a candy store when I go there because. I love me some books and a used book is I think the best way to buy a book. Mm-hmm. It looks super good. Like I was I, to tell, if you were to tell me that somebody else had read that thing, that square, the corners were all like 90 degrees. It was incredible. I got it right here, baby. I can't believe it. <laughs> it's soon to be a motion major picture. Like so. here's my copy. Can you see this? It's just, Oh yeah. Like the back isn't even on the thing. <laughs> just gone to pieces. <laughs> That's a, that's a well-loved book. I, I, I enjoy to see that as well. You know, like, Here are pieces of it that have fallen out. <laughs> <laughs> it might be time for you to upgrade uh, and keep that one on the bookshelf. And have just have fun mem- memories of it if you're losing pages already. Um, How many times have you read the book? That's a little unfair because there's three of them, and I've read some of them a couple of times. But the one, <laughs> I've got one that I keep on a clipboard open to the page I'm working on that day, and it... Uh, it's the one that was in the best shape. I think I bought that at the University of Windsor bookstore, actually, yeah. once upon a time. Uh, I found that at that store, you could find, um, just by virtue of it being nearer to the U.S., down there uh, near Michigan, that you could get, sometimes books are released in the, in the States earlier than they are in Canada. And I think that sometimes you could find releases that were not yet available in Canada at that bookstore, which is pretty neat. Oh, that is neat, yeah. I think. Yeah. I think. Although my copy of... I got my copy of The Lost World before it was available in Canada on a trip to New York that we took uh, during a teacher strike one fall. <laughs> I remember riding the New York subway with that book, and then there were people uh, dressed for Halloween <laughs> during that trip that was, on the subway. That was the fall of 1997. Is that right? Yeah. That could be. I guess that would be when the book came out. It has to be. And uh, I remember there was a guy dressed as Pee Wee Herman on a bicycle riding down the street, and he was doing the, the Pee Wee Herman laugh, which... I've tried to do, and I can't do it. Uh, Paul Rubens, that, uh, that, that teacher strike almost ruined my Halloween because we were home <laughs> instead of being in school. And so I'm an identical twin for the listeners out there. And you can imagine the kind of utter chaos that having two 
adolescent boys in a household would bring. Um, and so, you know, normally you have that and you've got school as an outlet and that is where you go to be loud and obnoxious and run around with your friends and all those kinds of things. But when your teachers are on strike, you have to be at home and that means there usually needs to be a parent there as well. Uh, and uh, my dad made my brother and I, I think we had to do like rake the leaves. It was fall, southwestern Ontario, so it was warm. Uh, we were outside, but my brother and I were like around so much that basically my dad was like, look, like if you don't behave, you're not going trick or treating this year. <laughs> oh wow! And so there was this like looming threat. It was like, it's great that we have this like gifted vacation because our teachers are on strike. And I think they were fighting against was maybe Mike Harris at the time yeah, and, yeah. and all, of his, all of his cuts and things like that. And, uh, but my brother and I, we don't care why the teachers aren't working. We're just so happy that we don't have to be in school, <laughs> uh, only to realize that, you know, maybe the authority at home is um, much more stern than it was at school. And so we were, we had this looming threat of mm -hmm. losing our trick or treating privileges. And that we were probably 12. I think there was like grade seven. So yeah, 12. I mean, that was probably the last year we could go trick or treating because my parents weren't like letting us when we were 16 years old go out trick or treating. Mm -hmm. So. That was a that's a precious time in a child's life you know there's a finite amount of trick-or-treat slaps you know yeah, you don't want to screw right. around with those no you're right there is no next year this is it there's yeah this is it baby like i gotta get my chocolate bars <laughs> so before you went out and found this book i remember i you said i'm gonna go find it and uh and i'll read it before we meet and uh and i my review was it's got lots of very good parts and the bad ones are really simple to overlook uh how does that hold up as a spoiler free review I think it's great. I, I like I said, the, like the book is so well written. Yeah. Like it's so easy to just get lost in the flow of the like the author's narrative. It feels like at one point you're kind of part of it, but at the same time, like you're just it's just really well written story. So you know, like I said, there are some like for me, there were some some a few things like the pure science fiction of the whole thing. Like it just could like it could have gone a step further, but. At the same time, like, I think you're right. You, you can overlook all of these little shortcomings. Um, uh, I also, there was just one thing that I thought was really interesting in that the only time the author ever brings up anybody's race or skin color is when the people are in sort of subservient roles. Like they get to the park and he says that there's two black men who open up the doors of the vehicles mm -hmm. or he talks about the, um, the doctor's assistant in Costa Rica, who's the only character that uses broken English. And mm -hmm. they talk about like sort of those things. And so I thought it was kind of like, it's, it's very American for sure. But uh, the only time that he ever brings up race is in like these couple of really specific instances. And they're mm -hmm. always people that have like, they're not main people. They don't have main jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the novel or the movie obviously changes that Samuel Jackson's like the one of the head people. Uh, and hold on to your butts is a line that I use throughout my entire life and will continue to use. And I forgot that he says it two times in the movie. I thought he only said it at the beginning of the ride. And I forgot that he said it when he resets the power generator. So I was very pleasantly surprised he got two times out of his mouth. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, and Crichton does it a couple times. I think when the helicopter arrives at the very beginning in the prologue, mm -hmm. that one of the, uh, the people carrying the injured worker is uh, said to be a, a black person. And uh, you're right. There is the only time that that uh, race is brought up is for some reason to further characterize uh, 
an employee that's standing around in coveralls, yeah. you know? And yeah. I looked into, like, so they called, they're called Tekan workers. Tekan, I guess, is um, what you call people from Costa Rica. And I don't think it's a slur. Yeah. I think it's, like, Norwegian, except for they're Tekan. Sure. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but that's what I've... Or it could be the indigenous population or the indigenous name for the people from Costa Rica, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. I looked into, like, what is the demographic... Uh, uh, what is the demographic makeup of, of people from Costa Rica? And um, they're, as you would imagine, uh, generally Latino, or you know. And so I look at well, how many are how many are black? And it's like one to two percent or something like that. So even yeah. even in you know when Crichton is envisioning, uh, had he been to Costa Rica, I don't know. When he's envisioning a worker from Costa Rica, this is what he comes up with. And mm-hmm. uh, I just finished the Lost World over again, and I found that I think that. Crichton must have been acutely aware of some of the responses he was getting on his portrayal of women and portrayal of uh, visible minorities because Mm -hmm. he makes two specific characters, Arby and Kelly, in the second book who are two children that join, that kind of stow away uh, and make it to the second island. And um, one is a little girl and one is a, a, a really smart uh, black boy who is a uh, the child of two doctors, I think, or something like that. I think it's said as well okay. as a, a gynecologist. And I think kind of got this feeling the last time I read it, and I just finished it recently. Uh, at the very end, um, there's a very strong feminine character named Sarah Harding. She's she's the hero of the of the book. She she drags people by their collar to, uh, to save their lives, no matter who they are. Like Malcolm is a, a bloody pulp by the end of the movie, and she's dragging him. And she won't let this guy die, um, and and she uh, is the hero for the Kelly character, the little girl. And the girl is basically um, Sarah Harding gives her like the pep talk. She says, "You got to. Nobody's going to believe in you because you're a girl. You're, everybody's going to tell you what to think. Believe in yourself. Forget what the doubters say." And and basically Kelly saves them as they escape. Spoiler alert. And, uh, <laughs> but I think like Crichton must have felt, because it's clear in Jurassic Park that there is something about the portrayal of women and visible minorities that is problematic. Like it's right. oh, yeah. it's easy to see, hey, what's he doing here? And it's not evil. It's not yeah. wrong or anything. It, it, it's just it doesn't improve the narrative at all. Like it doesn't add anything. And so when you when you come across these descriptors, you're like well, why? Like, who yeah. gives a shit mm-hmm. that these are black men that are opening up this car door? Like, it didn't add anything to the scene, to the narrative, to that that moment. Yeah. And so it was like, what a weird choice to put it in here. And because it happens so few times, you know, it's not like paying to Dr. Grant. It is pale white head mm-hmm. shining in the light. You know, like, they don't talk about that at all. And then, yeah, again, with Ellie, like, Ellie, I think, is the only character that gets her, like, physical appearance really described. Yeah. In a, in a fairly sexualized way, lot, other than yeah. maybe Ian Malcolm, because they describe his like black, all black clothes, like black sneakers. Mm. And so those are maybe the only two characters they were there to talk about what they're wearing. But with Ellie, it's very much like showing her midriff. She's wearing kind of these short shorts with these legs and mm. everything. And you're like, why? Like, what is this? This doesn't really add anything. Mm. Like, she could be, they could have described her as the frumpiest of frumpy looking people. <laughs> and you would have been like, cool. But like, She's a badass paleontologist, and she's an expert in her field, and she's got all these things going on, on in her world, um, and it's just like okay, mm-hmm. so you just you have to wonder why he inserted these little descriptors in at the moments that he did, and and maybe part of that's because he's like, well, I'm writing a book for 
juvenile males and they all want to know about this leggy blonde <laughs> the and, comic book you know. uh, crowd yeah and i think yeah, uh, right. there's another really telling moment where dr wu is talking about uh um dna and how it hasn't evolved in a long time and there's just this moment about how people in their everyday lives walking down the streets bouncing their pink little babies uh, never think about um, I don't know that that DNA is very ancient or something like that and just the, right. the, this the baby could be anything it could be any kind of little baby but it's pink little baby and pink little baby and it's uh, and and these are everyday people doing you know regular city things <laughs> and it's just <laughs> I, there's you're right these odd little things and I think whether he knew it when he wrote it or not I'm certain when he did the Lost World had a second chance to revisit this universe he specifically made these two characters that um we're gonna be a response to that and they're better they're better characters and uh so i I think that he became aware of it if he were unconscious of it which i I got a hunch that he might have been when he did i'm sure it was like in a lot of unconsciousness like he wrote the book in the 80s right and so i think between the overlap of you look at sort of what happened within within the Hollywood context, because I'm sure he was, when he was writing The Lost World, he was like, I'm going to make another movie. Like, that last movie made a gajillion dollars. It would be stupid <laughs> to think that this is going to be a novel and that's the only format this you know, work will ever be. Uh, and so Hollywood obviously takes his work and they, they, they you know, sort of s- slowly diversified throughout mm-hmm. the 90s. And that was a big theme of our childhood. It was representing other people's stories and representing how, like, letting those people um, decide how they want to be represented in these mediums. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of the overarching theme, but Crichton must have, have picked up on that as well. But yeah, I, I mean, I doubt it's intentional. It's just, it's just weird when mm-hmm. you go back and you're like, why did he make these decisions? Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't, doesn't add anything. And I but, think that uh, there, you could even imagine, like, he would have helped co, at least form the, the first draft of the screenplay. And there are market decisions on what Ellie Sattler does in the film that are sure. definitely more pro-feminist like there is a step up from what she does in the book to what she does she's more of an agent of um saving the day and things like that she, yeah. she plays a much bigger role she gets to star a lot more in the film and i think Absolutely. spielberg was aware too like i'm pretty sure as soon as this book came out people were like Argh. i think a lot of those things were very noticeable For to sure. everybody whole, <laughs> and spielberg yeah, was like I'm, I'm gonna fix this a little bit and it wasn't yeah. perfect by any means but uh he changes sure. it the spielberg movie is great like you know I can't think of two better people to have done that film than John Williams scoring Steven Spielberg's work. And I think there's a reason why those two worked mm-hmm. so intimately together on so many of Spielberg's projects is because I, I remember uh, when I think it was when uh, Spielberg won an Oscar for Schindler's List uh, and, and then John Williams, I think, also won the Oscar for uh, scoring that film. And there was um, a story I'd heard that the two of them are talking and uh, um Spielberg essentially says to John Williams, like, there's nobody bet, there's nobody alive that could do a better job scoring my films than you, uh, which I think was always really touching their relationship because you know, John Williams is probably the most influential, uh, one of the most influential people of our like childhoods. When you think about like the movies that he 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 created these like these musical pieces for, and you know that opening scene in the film where the helicopter comes in and then the Jurassic Park song comes on, like. I can't think of a more beautiful sounding song mm-hmm. to think of this elev- this helicopter in a low elevation amongst these like very like almost mossy volcanic ridges on this Costa Rican island in the rainforest. And um, I just think the two of them did such a good job of, of creating 
the feel because Spielberg makes you feel like at, at times that you're watching what is happening in the park, but then the, they cut out all the scenes of the um, Dr. Grant and Allie and everybody going through the different lab components so they could sit and watch a screen of the little animated mm -hmm. DNA sequence telling them what they had done with the amber and everything like that. But the way that they film it, you, you feel like you're in one of the seats. Like it's a really high and oh, yeah. back shot. And so, it you know, you, you can imagine that you're <laughs> actually in that room and then the whole screen goes to this this film. And so you're the, you become a viewer in the park. Yeah. And so all these shots happen and that you feel like you're actually in Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is just like so well done. And I think that like lends so well to who Spielberg is as a director. Yeah, there's no crane shots. There's no bird's eye view. You're right. Yeah. A lot of it is from like the camera must have been about five and a half feet up in the air because everything yeah. is from that angle. The dinosaurs, yeah. you got to look up at them. Uh, Absolutely. Everything, and sometimes it's from yeah. the kid's perspective. And so as a young person, like I remember I wasn't allowed to watch Jurassic Park when it first came out because I was maybe not even eight seven or eight like it was nine that's good I think it came that's out. too young yeah. um and so i was too young and my parents were like no like there's dinosaurs that eating everybody like <laughs> not gonna, it's not good for you uh but i did the very first time i saw the scene where the tyrannosaurus rex eats the lawyer in, on the toilet mm -hmm. i was at a sears and my parents were shopping <laughs> and it was on it was on one of the big screen tvs and they were they were you know, all the tvs were showing jurassic park and yeah. my brother and i were standing there and we were watching it for the first time, and this T-Rex comes over and just eats the guy in the toilet. And here we are in the middle of this department, and we're like, holy God. <laughs> we're waiting to get our family studio shot. <laughs> yeah, watching, you know, Buddy get eaten in the can. Um, and uh, and I just, I love, I have this, this very distinct memory, and that's the very first time I saw that scene. Um, and then I went back, and we were like, I don't know, I don't know how much later in life I, I saw the film finally. At that point, I was like, well, this is it. Like, this is, mm -hmm. this is the scene that you're not supposed to want your kids to see. Well, it's not that bad. It's astonishing <laughs> how many memories are attached to this film. I'll never forget where I was when X or Y or Z happened. A lot of Absolutely, people have stories yeah. about wanting to see it or the first time they saw it. It's it's memorable in a lot of ways. For sure. And and as a kid, like, I mean, I love dinosaurs. I, I wanted to go to Queens to sell, study paleontology because it was the only school in uh, Ontario that offered paleontology as, as a full-time thing. I think the University of Toronto did it maybe only when there was enough students available or something, okay. but uh, uh, Woodstock, Ontario is sort of where I, near where I grew up. It was like the main hub of the, the, the rural areas where I was living. They, and I wish I knew who did it. It must've been the ROM put on this traveling exhibition of dinosaurs. And so the Woodstock Museum got these dinosaur um, skeletons and they like put them up and then they had these people that were giving tours and my my maternal grandparents took my brother and I to it and they were talking about brachiosauruses or brachiosauruses and my grandmother all loves to tell the story because I interrupted the tour to tell her like <laughs> well they're not brachiosauruses anymore they're brachiosauruses like it's changed right like you know you probably put that dinosaur together wrong you figured you didn't get the jigsaw puzzles to correct like it's got and Tim does that in the book he yeah. He's like, do you know why this dinosaur is wrong? He's like, yeah, it has too many vertebrates in its neck. And you immediately realize that Tim is a very sharp kid that really knows his stuff. And I think that's where the bond between Dr. Grant and Tim really come into play is this, like, he's not just this little bratty kid. He's He actually is, like, really passionate and really knowledgeable about the dinosaurs. And anyway, as I was a really smart aleck kid when I was, you know, seven and eight years old then. So I think I still am. But um, my grandma loves that story because I was telling the, the paleontologists or the tour guides that they were wrong about their dinosaur specimens. <laughs> yeah, right on. Well, uh, boy, we're short on time. I wanted to ask you more about like um, as a twin, 
you must have spent some time considering the what cloning means and have some sort of perspective <laughs> on what it would be like to be able to have another one of you around. And, yeah. and as a twin, <laughs> there you've got some experience as to what that would be like. <laughs> and so, but but beyond that, really, we only have a few moments left. I want to hear about your favorite character, your biggest surprise in the book. What's a, when you read the book? You have what part of it did you get to? You said oh, you I, almost I, are close. I, I got. I, I think I have like I only have I'm on page three fifty four. So okay. I got I got through most of it. I just I'm so close to the end, and and I know that. Like I said, in the book, way more people die. Like everyone gets eaten by velociraptors. And I'm really excited to see because I know, um, I don't, I'm not spoiling this because I already heard it, but I know Dr. Hammond dies, but he doesn't die in the, in the movie. And it's been forever since I've read the book. So I can't quite remember how his demise kind of falls apart. Okay. Uh, so I'm excited to see how they kill off some of these characters, which you can tell that Michael Crichton like write, wrote this and was like, okay, this is a standalone book. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to kill everybody off at the end. Like everyone gets eaten by dinosaurs. And in the movie, they obviously are like, well, let's, let's, let's milk this cow. Let's get as many, mm-hmm. many sequels out of this as we can. So let's maybe not kill off dear old Dr. Hammond. But um, I don't know. I think, I think Alan Grant is, is like, you know, when I was a kid, he was my favorite. Yeah. yeah he's, and I think the movie, the casting is so well done that because it had been 20 years since I've seen the movie as well. Like I just had these fuzzy images of what they all looked like in my mind when I'm reading this. And so because the descriptors are so good in the book that you're able to rebuild these characters. And then when I sat down and watched the movie, I was like, oh yeah, that's actually what they looked like. I had these just kind of fuzzy faces in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Alan Grant is my favorite, but that's just, you know, the little eight-year-old boy in me who loves paleontology. And uh, he's, you know, he's kind of that, he's kind of quiet, he's kind of reserved. Um, you know, he doesn't, Ian Malcolm is that loud, obnoxious yeah. rock star personality. And he's like, you know, I'm so smart. Listen to how smart I am. Uh, I told you so, blah, blah, blah. Or Dr. Grant kind of reserves judgment uh, at the beginning. He's just like very cautious. He's like, I, I think that this is probably a bad idea, but also the little kid in me is very excited about mm-hmm. the fact that there are dinosaurs here and I want to take full advantage of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think Ian Malcolm is in the book and I'm pretty sure in the n- movie as well, they, they describe him both times as being like a rock star yeah do you feel like jeff goldblum was playing the rock star and can you put your finger on which one because <laughs> to me like i don't know he's got the the jerry curl sort of thing going on like he could yeah. have been coming out of motown or something i'm not sure what well yeah or like or i think like axel because he's got all that black and his shirt's kind of unbuttoned a little bit and certainly i mean the other thing too is like because it's become such it's such a huge component of pop culture like you're watching it and there's like Wayne Knight on the beach and there's the meme where he's like nobody cares like no Dobson Dobson yeah oh, Dobson's here like <laughs> there's this like beautiful thing but the other one of the other one of my favorites is when Jeff Goldblum is like shirt undone but he's been injured he's lying on the yeah. bed and that sort of that little little bit of light is kind of coming in and falling on his bare chest and and it just oh I love that so much yeah and Jeff Goldblum <laughs> is, is such such a big personality that mm-hmm. he really does capture that well and it's hard to know if jeff it's always hard to know if he's playing a character or if he's just playing himself like, yeah it just seems like jeff goldblum walks on his set one day he, he just starts talking for whatever period of time and then he goes home and he's the exact same person at home <laughs> wouldn't that be something yeah. it would have been fascinating if he pictured like the rock star as like 
Lemmy Kilminster from Motorhead or something like that. Just came walking. Oh, yeah, Lemmy. <laughs> how many different? What types of rock stars? What if we were to change that paradigm? How many different iterations of Malcolm could have been very interesting to employ? And I can't. <laughs> is he a womanizer in the novel? Because he's certainly a womanizer in the movie. Like he does flirt with Ellie in the book. But I don't remember him talking about his like next Mrs. X Malcolm mm-hmm. as he does in, in the movie. Because I think it's a little bit more overt, his like mm-hmm. coming on to Elliot. Right. Maybe he was more of a about... Rico Suave type of rock star instead. Yeah. <laughs> I don't um, recall in the novels him talking about a... his ex wives. There, there are some mentions of having like romantic liaisons. It yeah. is mentioned that he is an. Uh, so in the second one, he and Sarah Harding had a fling. Okay. I don't know if it was a lasting one. I don't know how serious it got. I don't know that there's ever mentioned that he was actually married to anyone. Right. Uh, he doesn't have any kids, as far as I know, in the books. No, no, I don't think so. And then in the movie, he doesn't in the movie. I don't think either. Well, in he the movie, Kelly about... is his daughter. Oh, okay. I don't know okay. if it's a stepdaughter, but um... I can't remember they mentioned that in the movie, or not in the first one. But yeah, okay, that's interesting. Uh, and do you have any kids? I can't remember. Boy, I feel like that line was asked. I can't think of the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, check the show. Course, I, haven't, I, 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 need, I should read The Lost World. I'm, I, I, this one was such a good read that I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I should read that one. And then watch that movie. Did Spielberg do the second movie as well? Yeah, he did. Yeah. I would say that um, it's it's in the second, after reading the novel, you'll find uh, that the second movie has a lot of elements from the first novel as well. It's yeah. loosely based on the second novel. The second does novel. Crichton, does he write the screenplay for the second one as well? <sighs> he must have had some influence on it, but I don't know. He must have, because I mean, like they pulled the opening scene from the first mm-hmm. book in. That's the opening scene for the second movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so he must have, and he and he obviously wrote the screenplay for the first movie, which I think is great because like it gave him so much control to make mm-hmm. those things that are more cinematically appropriate. If you because the movie flies by, like it's two hours long, yeah. but it flies by like in the first it takes 150 pages they do what they do in 10 15 minutes in the, in the movie i mean that's always how it kind of goes with these things but um you'll be astonished if I you read the book because i would say 10 percent of the characters in the novel are in the in the uh, in the film the rest yeah. of it they just recast it re redo the whole thing like it's really it's based yeah. on a novel very loosely <laughs> and that's very about loosely. it it's it's astonishing and uh which makes reading the, the second novel uh, so much more of an adventure because it's amazing how prevalent and at the forefront of your mind the films remain. Like their impressions, because of I imagine the the visual memories and the yeah. audible memories and uh, and the emotional stirs that those all do. Those are different memories when you when you trigger them <clears throat> than when you, when you're thinking about reading a book. And so your memories of that seems to stand very clear. And when you read in the novel, you're like, geez, who is this guy? This guy's not in the movie, and, and uh, you'll be. Yeah, I've read I reread Lost World a couple times this uh this year because of the podcast and and it's astonishing what is not in there. But it, at the same time mm-hmm. what is in the book too. It's um it's fascinating yeah. in some ways. I recommend it. It's not as good. Yeah. I'll have to read it. It's not as good? <laughs> no. No. But it, it but it's a different type of adventure and it's uh and it's very interesting. It talks about dinosaurs a little bit more. For some reason okay. everybody's a dinosaur expert instead of just Grant and, <laughs> and Tim. <laughs> And, uh, they realized they needed more experts on the actual things they were creating than just like mm-hmm. DNA scientists. And they did more like dinosaur observation and sort of dinosaur recon as opposed to okay. uh, just running, which right. is good. When they do get running, they have to run for a while, but, but it's more than just <laughs> running. 
All right, we're flat out of time. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, it was good to catch up again. Yeah, this is great. Thanks so much for inviting me. I, it was a lot of fun to to read the novel again and then to sit down and watch the movie. It was just like, uh, it was a really good excuse to just be kind of, uh, just enjoy it and just kind of fall down those memories. And it's been too long since I've we've, we've interacted and seen each other. It's yeah. just too bad. All right, a terrific thank you to my great guest. Adam Buck, thank you for coming on the show, buddy. Uh, This week's text is control, spanning from pages 238 to 243. In a synopsis, Arnold returns control to the island, and Muldoon wrangles a team to begin cleaning up after the storm. Gennaro then goes to recruit Harding for the cleanup mission and finds Malcolm high on morphine, relating his memories of being attacked by the Tyrannosaur. Despite Malcolm putting on a brave face, Sattler makes it clear he must get to a hospital as soon as possible if he's to survive his injuries. Characters, Robert Muldoon. He returns to the control room on page 238. After Arnold enters the Fini.Object command, Muldoon notices right away through the windows the quartz lights were coming on throughout the park on page 240. And Muldoon knows he's got work to do. We better get on with it, he says. Those three cutouts in the fence need repairing right away, and some animals have to be returned to their paddocks. Donald Gennaro. He returns to the control room as well on page 238, and Gennaro confesses to not knowing much about computers. Throughout the novel, Gennaro doesn't know much about anything and continuously is having the experts explain things to him, driving the exposition in many ways. He's a useful character in this way. Uh, He's really the reader's proxy. Recall, he didn't know much about chaos theory and needed Malcolm to explain. He didn't know much about animal attacks and needed Muldoon to explain. Now he doesn't know much about computers and needs Arnold to explain. He doesn't know about cutouts in the electrified fences, and needs Arnold to explain that too on page 240. He doesn't know about the, quote, green spots and numbers popping up on the map, and needs Arnold to explain that as well on page 241. Gennaro then finds Sattler and Harding administering to Malcolm, and Malcolm is joking around, being witty, obviously having a strong reaction to the morphine on page 242. Gennaro wants to know what happened to Malcolm, and Malcolm needs to explain. And Gennaro then recruits Harding for the final cleanup mission with Muldoon on page 243, Uh, But man, Gennaro is just a long list of questions in this chapter. Here is his dialogue. Does this mean the electrified fences are back on? And the motion sensors? Cutouts? Why would that section be out? Why does it take so long? You don't see the kids? How is he? Do you remember what happened? How? You think he attacked half-heartedly? What's a Malcolm effect? A helicopter? So, like, Crichton is using Gennaro to drive exposition. Otherwise, nobody would be saying any of this stuff out loud. And so I guess this is for our benefit, but, you know, <laughs> thanks, Donald Gennaro, for being so inquisitive. John Arnold. Arnold finds what he's looking for on page 238 and calls it a son of a bitch. He's pleased to have found the command to restore the original code on t- page 239, and it's object. for anyone wondering. This will reset the linked parameters, namely the fence and the power. Nedry, however, programmed this command to also erase the code lines that refer to it, destroying all evidence it was ever there. And Arnold says that that is, quote, pretty slick. Then he enters the command, just like that, and the lights come back on. Hot dams, adds Arnold, always with some very casual expression. And he's continuously portrayed as, you know, a fairly plain-spoken fella, to the brink of almost informal as a professional. And I believe plain-spoken is what Crichton's going for with this character. (laughs) And of course, uh... Samuel L. Jackson's got the hold on to your butts as an adaptation of of this character into the film, which is clever. There are only three cutouts in the electrified fences, meaning only three places in the park where the fences are down during the outage on page 240. There's one at the Tyrannosaur paddock, one in the Sauropod paddock, and one by the Jungle River. Arnold has set the animal count to above 400, just like before when they were analyzing the park with Malcolm back in chapter 32 control. With the parameters above the expected number, any additional animals should be presented quickly, and Arnold calls them additionals on page 241. 
They don't find any additionals yet, and so believes the missing persons are up a tree, or, quote, somewhere else we can't see them, on page 241. Arnold helps to build the maintenance team and volunteers to let Hammond know that they're launching the final cleanup. Dr. Harding. Dr. Harding is still presently administering morphine to Dr. Ian Malcolm, but Gennaro is tasked with relieving Harding of his duties because the doctor will be required out in the park with Muldoon's maintenance crew to tranquilize the animals and return them to their proper paddocks, on page 241, we're told. Harding is administering the morphine, adjusting the IV, on page 242, and he and Malcolm are laughing and telling jokes when we arrive. Dr. Ellie Sattler. Sattler comes down the hallway to meet Gennaro carrying towels and a pan of steaming water, on page 241 and 242, and she's become a nurse. She hears laughter coming from Malcolm's room as she returns, which startles her. Malcolm says he'll be all right without Dr. Harding, so long as Dr. Sattler is with him to administer the morphine. Sattler then tells Gennaro that Malcolm needs a helicopter extraction to get him to surgery as soon as possible on 243. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant opens his eyes on page 240, and he's groggy, and he sees that he's only been asleep for a few minutes, and despite needing extraction from the park to save himself and the kids, he opts to go back to sleep. Also, his watch reads 9.30 when he checks it, which means he's adjusted the time on his watch to meet the local time for this weekend. He's obviously more anal about the details than I am, because I wouldn't do that. Uh, Tyrannosaurus. Harding says Tyrannosaurus and other, quote, big carnivores don't have strong jaws. The real power is in the neck musculature. The jaws just hold on while they use the neck to twist and rip. But with a small creature like Dr. Malcolm, the animal would just shake him and then toss him, we're told. T-Rex is said to weigh 8 tons by Malcolm in this chapter, and please note, this interpretation of Tyrannosaur jaws is not presently believed to be true. Tyrannosaurus bit very hard, with very strong jaws. Dr. Ian Malcolm. We're told Malcolm is doing, quote, surprisingly good on 242, and we find him laughing and joking around, obviously feeling the effects of the morphine. He is lively and charismatic. Perhaps this is because he's uncomfortable with people worrying over him, and so he's overreacting to the attention he's receiving. In any case, his first question to Gennaro as he enters the room, is if Grant and the kids are okay. And this is a primary concern for Malcolm, even though he's being jocular. His leg is diagnosed as a, quote, compound fracture that is, quote, likely septic and beginning to smell rather, uh, pungent. (laughs) Malcolm feels like being asked if he remembers the attack is the most ridiculous thing he's ever heard. Of course he remembers being attacked by a Tyrannosaurus. He thwarts away the concerns of his impending death due to this injury with more humor. I'll tell you, you'd remember it for the rest of your life. In my case, perhaps not terribly a long time, but yes, still, I remember on 242. He blames himself for trying to run from the dinosaur. It was too close, and it caught him easily. He admits he panicked. The Tyrannosaur lifted him in its jaws by the torso, and Malcolm can show a, quote, broad semicircle of bruised punctures running from his shoulder to his navel on 242. He was lifted up, shaken, quote, bloody hard, and then thrown down. He was fine during the bite and shaking, but the landing broke his leg. But he says, quote, the bite was not half bad on 243, and he admits, quote, I doubt I'd have survived except the big chap's heart wasn't in it, on 243, suggesting that the Tyrannosaur wasn't interested in eating him. Malcolm sort of humorously alludes to his own megalomania, quote, it pains me to say it, I don't honestly feel I had his full attention, admits Malcolm, and he'd only be pained by this because his stature and presence doesn't command respect from the Tyrannosaur, as he expects his academic stardom does in other circles. And recall, he acts like a rock star. So being bit by a Tyrannosaur is a lesson in humility, and I I think there's at least one listener out there who I know will relate to this. For anyone out there who takes umbrage with the now-bastardized utility of the expression, I'm humbled, I think this is a great example of the I-feel-humbled expression being used correctly. And so, as Gennaro recruits the doctor away from Malcolm's bedside, Malcolm says he'll be fine so long as he has Dr. Sattler by his side with lots of morphine. Oh, and 
so long as we don't have a Malcolm effect here, and then he passes out. Make no mistake, he's under tremendous strain. Malcolm needs surgery. And as an aside, just to take a final moment to address the expression, to feel humbled to receive this recognition or whatever. To feel humbled is not when you feel grateful or honored. To be humbled is the opposite. It's when you think you're great, but someone rightfully takes you down a peg. That's humbling. It's when you think you're a rock star, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, but then you get thrown like a doll by a tyrannosaur. That's humbling. Wanting to accept praise or an award with humility does not equate to you saying, I feel humbled. Those aren't the same thing. I discourage you from doing that. Localities, we have uh, control. Again, the windows in the control room are mentioned, and we can see into the park, specifically the quartz lights coming back on, quote, throughout the park on page 240, which gives the connotations that from the higher altitudes of the northern end of this island, where the tourist area is, and also the visitor center, where the control room is located, that it's almost like a crow's nest, or on the side of a great mountain. And you can oversee the entire park from this window. Recall again, there is a, quote, vertical glass see-through map of the park, and on it, Tracking the animals, power resources, and, and everything like that can be done. Also, Arnold, quote, twists in his chair as he switches from looking at the map and looking at his computer. So the map isn't in view of his monitor. And he also has to twist in his chair to consult the map. Isla Nublar. There are 50 miles of electrified fencing in the park, we're told on page 240. As well as the, quote, cutout in the electric fence is described as, quote, sector 12 near the main road. So the place near the Tyrannosaur paddock on the main road where the land cruisers were attacked is in Sector 12 for anyone making a Jurassic Park map out there. The maintenance shed, a brilliant quartz light, streams into this building when the power is on at night, which is most nights, except for tonight when Nedry cut the power on page 240. Uh, the sauropod paddock, there is said to be another cutout in the electric fence in Sector 11 near the sauropod maintenance building. This suggests that the Tyrannosaur may have entered into the sauropod paddock, and we'll get that confirmed when the Hadrosaur stampede features the Tyrannosaur. The control room believes this is out because of a fallen tree or storm damage, so they were, they're just guessing and they're wrong. The Jungle River. There is a cutout in the electrified fence by the Jungle River, which cannot be explained by Muldoon or Arnold. We'll later discover what happened there. Uh, Safari Lodge. The Safari Lodge, recall, is in the northern visitor area, which is a dramatic, long, low building with a series of pyramid shapes on the roof, which has, quote, welcoming lights on page 219. And the front entrance is fitted with, quote, iron gates as Gennaro passes through them on 241 before reaching the front door. This harkens back to Sattler's line, and did you see the fence when we came in? On page 87, this is a fortified facility. This may go out without saying. The Safari Lodge has rooms connected by a hallway, and the kitchen is at the other end of the hall to where Malcolm is laid up. Allusions and references. We get a joke. We only get the punchline in this story here. So the other man says, I'll tell you frankly, I didn't like it, Bill. It went back to toilet paper on page 242. I took a peek at the internet, and as far as I can tell, the joke goes like this. Uh, hi, Bill. Hi, Ian. Say, you look a bit uncomfortable. Are your pants bothering you? <laughs> oh, well, you see, Bill, I recently just purchased a toilet brush. Okay, and this is making you uncomfortable? Well, I'll tell you frankly, I didn't like it, Bill. I went back to toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So, no wonder Harding is rolling on the floor laughing at that joke. It's a good one. And a big thank you to the terrific guest, Dr. Scott Persons, for participating in our little skit. Thank you, Scott. The Malcolm Effect. Ian Malcolm is the second character to bring up the Malcolm Effect, which, for now, should be considered like an expression of doom. Think of it as a complete system collapse, leaving everyone entirely vulnerable 
control of any kind is lost. The earlier reference is on page 220. So Malcolm is aware of the Malcolm effect, and we know Hammond and Arnold are aware of it, and perhaps it was part of Malcolm's paper that he sent to the designers before they broke ground. I don't know. He may not like that it's a phenomenon named after him, but maybe he does. I don't know. That Malcolm brings up the Malcolm effect, and this is while he's joking about dark and foreboding ideas like nihilism and mortality, there's a connotation that the Malcolm effect is bad. Plus, this is the second time people have said that they do not want to have a Malcolm effect. Foreshadowing uh, of an inciting incident. Usually I'd put this in the literary techniques section, but while we're discussing the Malcolm effect, it serves as foreshadowing. Malcolm says he'll be fine so long as he has Dr. Sattler by his side with lots of more morphine. Oh, and so long as we don't have a Malcolm effect here. And then he passes out. Wait, what? What's the Malcolm effect? Are, are we going to have one? Well... I guess we can all predict that this is exactly where the novel's headed, right? We just don't know what that is yet. So, some foreshadowing. Stylistic techniques. Repetition. Although he knew enough to know what it meant when a high-tech company went back to source code, it meant big, big problems on page 239. And here, big, big really emphasizes the stakes here. This is sometimes down with done with italics, sometimes done with capitals or a bold font. Here, it's done as um, part of the language, part of an expression, rather than through rhetorical emoting. In any case, we're not to lose sight of the fact that going back to source code is bad, and it will be consequential if the park does it. Italics. Of course, I remember on page 242, says Malcolm, with the italics betraying strong emotions that he's having. Later, Tyrannosaurus Rex is italicized, as if it were in an academic paper, which it is not. But it follows in the common convention of giving the Latin name of a species and genus in italics. Colon. Arnold pointed, pointed to the screen. Colon. Computer jargon is then listed on page 238. Here the colon presents a list of search results. Quartz light. Colon. The power was back on! Exclamation mark on page 240. Here we get more of that cause and effect structure. Seeing quartz light indicates a realization of truth. Semicolon. Quote, the control room would spot him. Semicolon. They'd send a car to pick him and the kids up. He'd tell Arnold to recall the supply ship, and they'd all finish the night in their own beds back in the lodge on page 240. Here are two ideas connected by a semicolon. I think this could have been two sentences if you were to replace um, the semicolon with a conjunctional clause like then. And then this would be, you know, two separate sentences. But I think Crichton has a taste for semicolons. They're very common in this text, anyhow. Rhetorical questions. Do you think you could be bitten by Tyrannosaurus Rex and it would escape your mind? On 242, suggests Malcolm with some incredulity. And of course he remembers. That's a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer that. Ellipses. You mean Grant and the kids. Ellipsis. On page 241, Gennaro leaves this empty space to be filled by Arnold's answer that, yes, he expects the motion sensors to pick up Grant and the kids now that they're up and running again. Quote, but I always say, if you can't keep a sense of humor, ellipsis, on page 242. And this is Malcolm deferring the perhaps incredible dread that he's feeling. He'll later go on to become nihilistic, pretty low in terms of people and their actions having any existential meaning. And so at this moment where he's trying to put on a brave face, ignoring his impending mortality, and whether his life has any meaning at all, he retorts, if he's not doing well, well, how else should he be doing, right? M-dash. It may take M-dash. Ah, okay. On page 241. Here, the M-dash is interrupting Arnold in his explanation as new results come in, sparing him from explaining any further to Gennaro. Exclamation! Look! With an exclamation mark, exclaims Muldoon, excited that the lights come on almost immediately after the fini.object command is executed on page 239 and 240. The power was back on! Exclamation again. 
People are really excited about this. This is invigorating and important news. That's why it's being exclaimed. But Grant must have really banged his head out there because he's totally hitting the snooze button and disregards this incredible news and goes back to sleep. I'll tell you frankly, I didn't like it, Bill. I went back to toilet paper! Exclamation. 242. Here, the exclamation is used to illustrate that a joke is being told. Sarcasm and humor are often very difficult to express in text, without the added bonus of emotional expression in the tone of one's voice. So textual representations of jokes and sarcasm resort to the exclamation mark to graphically present the intended tone. So that's how we know that that was a joke. Uh, Meta text again. Computer code is presented in a smaller font size and certainly resembles computer coding on page 239. Cretin again is good at presenting what they're looking at rather than saying what they're looking at. And this is another another iteration of the show-don't-tell philosophy, which I like. I have questions to anyone who's listened to these novels as audiobooks, and I'd love to know how these moments, these lists of computer code, the, the, the DNA breakdowns and things like that, how are these presented? Like, does the narrator just say all the lines of code? I don't know. You tell me. How does this sound in audio file? Humor. Malcolm is funny in this chapter, aided by the, quote, fairly high doses of morphine on page 242. And perhaps when Spielberg adapted the character to the film, it's from this moment that he derived the mathematician's sense of humor. Malcolm is telling jokes. And when Harding says he's on fairly high doses of morphine, Malcolm quips, not high enough, I can tell you, on 242, which always gets a chuckle out of me. This wasn't adapted into the film. Perhaps Spielberg isn't one to glorify drug use in his films. I mean, Maybe he is. In E.T., Spielberg got Elliot drunk while he was in elementary school for laughs, so perhaps that choice isn't on Spielberg. I I don't know. I would have laughed at the film if this line were in it. I can easily envision Jeff Goldblum raising an index finger and delivering this line with a plum. Literary techniques. We have wordplay and puns. We haven't had too much of this in the novel yet. Quote, now you know what happens from trying to get a leg up on the situation, on 242, says Malcolm, about his crushed leg. Getting a leg up is a common idiom referring to receiving support, encouragement, or an added advantage. And in this case, he's just using an expression that includes a leg because his leg is crushed. Metaphor. On the map, bright red lines were snaking out from the power station, moving throughout the park as electricity surged through the fences. This suggests that the red lines are expanding in their twisted and winding way, like a snake over the ground, but in this case across the island. It also suggests that the data on the map is presented in real time, and that immediately as the power flows back into the fence, that the red lines on the map reach forward, almost like mercury climbing up a thermometer. Whether that's how electricity actually flows into a circuit, I don't know. Like, power's out, lights are out. Power's on, lights all come back on. They don't come back on in a sequence from room to room to room. It just comes back on. It's a switch. It's on or off. I, I don't I don't think power... I don't know. I also don't have any experience with 50 miles of electric fence, so I don't know. Discussion. So we have dinosaurs in this chapter. Muldoon says that the map indicates that five animals must be herded back into their proper paddocks on 241. That said, we're also told that not all the animals have been counted, like the big racks. So is this expressly incomplete data? And... We must take umbrage with Harding's description of, quote, big carnivores in this chapter. He says they don't have strong jaws. Fact check, yes, they do. And I go into more detail in episode 41, The Road, if you want to check that out. But the twisting and ripping described by Harding here is consistent with Muldoon's observation upon investigating Ed Regis's severed leg earlier in the episode The Road as well. But this is inconsistent with how we watched the Tyrannosaur eat the goat, which it pinned to the ground with its leg and then nipped pieces from. The goat is much smaller than a man, and the man was small enough that the big rex can't shake him and then toss him. So, 
there's some inconsistencies here in how the T-Rex feeds on smaller prey. Malcolm confirms Harding's statement with regards to tackling small prey that the Tyrannosaur was a clumsy attacker of anything less than an automobile or a small apartment building. So he feels the Tyrannosaur attacked him clumsily, and I guess attacked the goat clumsily? I don't know. It doesn't hold up. Timeline, half past nine, and we've got the whole damn thing back up and running, says Arnold in 2.40. Now it's 9.30 p.m., and the power has been out for two and a half hours. Recall, Nedry executed his plan at 7 p.m. Simultaneously, elsewhere in the park, Grant checks his watch, and it reads 9.30 p.m. Now, Montana is one hour behind Costa Rica. Montana is in the Mountain Time Zone, or MST, whereas Costa Rica is in the CST, the Central Time Zone. This means Grant must have adjusted his watch for the weekend when he arrived. Feminism. Sattler comes down the hallway to meet Muldoon carrying towels and a pan of steaming water on 241 and 242, and she has become the nurse. A common trope as a caregiver heightened to a professional level, the nurse. A female character being a nurse is a common and strong cultural expression of the patriarchy. Nurses support doctors. Doctors are usually men. Women are usually nurses in, in common depiction. Even though, in this case, Sattler is... A doctor, commonly called a doctor in the book anyhow, if only a doctor of letters, but she's referred to often as a doctor, but now she's a nurse. In any case, this is in no way an expression of feminism. This is fitting very comfortably into the usual patriarchal narrative. Plotting the book. So recall earlier in the novel, during episode 33, Breeding Sites, where in the discussion section we observed that the final moments of the novel where Grant compels everyone to climb down a rabbit hole and into an active velociraptor nest sounds insane and out of the blue. Recall, in that chapter, Grant plots the task to count all the eggs on the island on page 168, but our complaint was that there was no connective tissue between that moment on 168 and the end of the novel, more than 200 pages later. That keeps this mission alive in the reader's mind. Well, here we have a moment where we do get a recap of Grant's mission. Get spotted on the motion sensors, save the kids, tell Arnold about the supply ship, but he doesn't mention the rest of his goals. Perhaps this isn't exactly what's most important in his mind necessarily as a character at this very moment, but his motivations are recalled and restated here. Here's an example of spending some time to create that connective tissue so that when plot points reemerge later, they don't feel alien to the reader. That makes this moment a spot where the visit all the nests and count all the eggs plot gets overlooked. And just as the novel overlooks them, so too will us readers overlook it and forget about it to the jarring conclusion when Muldoon threatens to cattle prod Gennaro if he doesn't climb into a raptor nest. Park management. When an animal isn't moving, they aren't tracked by the motion sensors, we're told on page 241. So, oh, if the big Rex isn't moving, Arnold believes that she is sleeping, then she goes unseen in the park. This both reveals a flaw in the control mechanism of Jurassic Park, but also gives us a bit of dread for the unknown. The Tyrannosaur could reappear anywhere at any time. We don't know where she is. This also suggests that during the overall animal count in episode 32, that every animal was moving during the calculation at that specific moment. How does that sit with you? Again, here I am, reading way too much into this, but I think this is a flawed contrivance in the concept of the park management. Right? Like, for the animal count to work... And for them to get to, to tally all the animals at a, any specific moment, for them all to appear, they all have to have been moving. And just if a single one isn't moving, it would go missing, and then there would be an alarm. Like it's just <sighs> feels like an a contrivance in terms of the problem of this story. Um, also, there is a maintenance crew that supports Muldoon in making repairs after the storm on page 241, and Arnold says Harding will be required in the herding of escaped animals. So that's part of how this park is managed. And that's it. 
Again, a big special thank you to Adam Buck for joining us on the show. Thank you so much, Adam. I want to sign off today also thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me at my RyanSRogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book. Call you back. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Until next time.